Hi everyone, and welcome to Dark as Hell. I'm your host, Maggie. We find ourselves at a pretty pivotal moment in history for the United States this week. At the time of recording, there are two days left. 69 hours, 4,153 minutes. That is all that is left in the Trump presidency. The poetry that the last week Trump is holding in office begins on a Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. Day shouldn't be lost on anyone either. Dr. King was a man who fought for the idea that no one should be judged on the color of their skin, on the notion, as he once said, that, quote, one day this nation will rise up and live up to its creed, that we hold these truths to be self-evident that all men are created equal. Now, you're all eagle-eyed, bright and bushy-tailed individuals, doll listeners. So you might be asking, what all does Trump's presidency ending, MLK Day, and the MMIW epidemic that we're supposed to be discussing in today's episode, what all do these things have to do with each other? When Joe Biden ascends to the presidency on Wednesday, those who have been nominated to serve in his cabinet will also take their first steps to being confirmed for their roles. And one of those roles will, if confirmed, be filled by Representative Deb Holland of New Mexico and of the Puebla Laguna tribe. Representative Holland has been nominated to serve as the Secretary of the Interior, which oversees the Department of the Interior. If she's confirmed to the role, she would become the first Native American to run the Department of the Interior, but she would also be the first Native American cabinet secretary, the first in American history. It's an historical first that, no doubt, Dr. King would have loved to see himself, given how much of a staunch advocate that he was for the Native people. Dr. King was an avid freedom fighter for all people of color and that included the indigenous people of this country. As he wrote in 1963 in his book, Why We Can't Wait, quote, Our nation was born in genocide when it embraced the doctrine that the original American, the Indian, was an inferior race. From the 16th century forward, blood flowed in battles of racial supremacy. We are perhaps the only nation which tried as a matter of national policy to wipe out its indigenous population. National policies, it should be noted, like the Indian Removal Act of 1830, which led to the infamous Trail of Tears, was signed into law by President Andrew Johnson, who was, coincidentally, the first president to ever be impeached. The connections are there. I told you. This week, I wanted to spend our time together focusing on a very timely issue, a very real, very active threat facing the indigenous women of this country, of North America as a whole, if we're being honest. If you're part of the DOS Spooky crew, you will recognize this episode because it's one that I shared with you back in November. 
Given all that has taken place since then and the sheer collision of timeliness, significance, and the ever-increasing need for this epidemic to be taken seriously, I'm releasing it to the wider Daw family as a whole. Because even though it's January now, it never hurts to be reminded that we know, by now, or at least we should, that the Thanksgiving we learned about growing up is a myth. It's fiction. I can't even say pure fiction because honestly, the original Thanksgiving had no ties to any sort of purity. It was actually a celebration, but it was a celebration to toast the barbaric slaughter of the Pequot village in 1637. Giving thanks to something like that, it, it tracks for the Puritans and the overall relationship colonists have had with the natives of this country since our arrival. The Pilgrims and Indians narrative is just that, a narrative created to whitewash the bloodshed out of the story and forcibly turn our gaze onto something more pleasant while sweeping the real stories about Indigenous people under the rug. It's that practice of sweeping Indigenous people and their stories under the rug. That's what I want to focus on today. The stories both inspiring awe and fear of the indigenous people throughout North America are stories that need to be told. Need to be told because so many of them are difficult to tell. They're difficult to hear. And that makes them all the more important. I'm going to tell you about the missing and murdered indigenous women epidemic, touching on the horrifying highway of tears and I'll be telling you a story that is, at its core, all too real. Realer, certainly, than the Thanksgiving myth and whitewashed history that we've all come to accept as fact. So settle in, and let me tell you about the missing and murdered Indigenous women epidemic. And let's get ready to get dark as hell. To tell the story of the missing and murdered indigenous women epidemic, we need to cover some ground rules, as well as some basic facts. Firstly, as a white woman, I did my best to research which terminology would be the best to refer to the native inhabitants of this continent. People of native descent are known as Native Americans, American Indians, indigenous people, though it should be noted the term American Indians excludes the people of the Alaskan native tribes and also excludes Native Hawaiians. There are a lot of nuances that go into a name, especially when it's aiming to be a collective categorization of a name. From my research, the most appropriate term seems to be indigenous people. And since indigenous is also included in the MMIW title, I feel most comfortable using it for our purposes today. The indigenous people of North America have been here for at least 15,000 years. So those of us with European descent need to step the fuck back because let me make it plain. We do not have claim to this land. 
since we merely rocked up in 1492. Interestingly, and by that I mean ironically, it wouldn't be until 1817 that the first indigenous people, those of the Cherokee tribe, were, quote, recognized as American citizens. Sometimes I hate it here, here in the depths of our hypocritical history as a nation. Today, there are over 5 million Indigenous Americans, and there are 574 federally recognized tribes. Roughly half of these 574 tribes are associated with reservations. For those not in the know, a reservation is defined as, quote, a legal designation for an area of land managed by a federally recognized Indian tribe under the U.S. Bureau of Indian Affairs, rather than the state governments of the United States in which they are physically located. Hint that somewhat garbled and confusing definition of what a reservation is will be something that we come back to. But also, fun fact, there are 12 U.S.-based reservations that are larger than the entire state of little old Rhode Island. According to a report by the Department of Interior's Bureau of Indian Affairs, which, going back to Representative Da Deb Holland, this is why it's really cool that she has been nominated to be the Secretary of the Department of Interior. According to a report by that department, there were 326 reservations in the U.S. as of August 2015. But don't let that number fool you because... Some tribes have more than one reservation, while some share reservations and others have no reservations at all. But here to further add to the murky and confusing designations and delineations of indigenous land rights is Ermi Sutton, and a quote from their article entitled, Sovereign States and the Changing Definition of the Indian Reservation. Quote, in addition, because of past land allotments leading to some sales to non-Native Americans, some reservations are severely fragmented, with each piece of tribal, individual, and privately held land being a separate enclave. This jumble of private and public real estate creates significant administrative, political, and legal difficulties. Sutton goes on to explain in even more depth the Janus-faceness of the U.S. dealings with our own indigenous people. Quote, These tribes possess the right to form their own governments, to enforce laws, both civil and criminal, within their lands by the power of the tribal council, to tax, to establish requirements for membership, to license and regulate activities, to zone, and to exclude persons from tribal territories. Limitations on tribal powers of self-government include the same limitations applicable to states. For example, neither tribes nor states have the power to make war, engage in foreign relations, or coin money, which includes paper currency. Native Americans and advocates of Native American rights point out that the U.S. federal government's claim to recognize the, quote, sovereignty of Native American peoples falls short. Given that the United States wishes to govern Native American peoples and treat them as subject to U.S. law, 
Such advocates contend that full respect for Native American sovereignty would require the U.S. government to deal with Native American peoples in the same manner as any other sovereign state. Handling matters related to relations with Native Americans through the Secretary of State, rather than the Bureau of Indian Affairs within the Department of Interior. So, all of that said, the way I understand it is this. The U.S. government cannot fucking have their cake and eat it too when it comes to indigenous people and their right to govern themselves through their own sovereignty. However, the U.S. being the U.S., that's exactly what the government wants to do. The indigenous people have tribal sovereignty, which is, quote, the concept of the inherent authority of indigenous tribes to govern themselves within the borders of the United States. But almost in direct contradiction of that, quote, currently the U.S. recognizes tribal nations as domestic dependent nations and uses its own legal system to define the relationship between the federal, state, and tribal governments. The government wants to lay claim to all of the good parts of governing over a people, like being able to cash in on the economic benefits of casinos on reservations. But they don't want to back that loyalty up when times are not so good. Like when there's an epidemic of missing and murdered women, wherein the U.S. government washes its hands and claims that it's a matter of a tribal council's jurisdiction and not the federal jurisdiction. I think we are all well aware of the historical hypocrisy that flows through the veins of this country as much as those ideals of life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. But every so often, there is just such a stark reminder of that hypocrisy in the modern day that it almost leaves me speechless. Keyword, almost. The concept of violence against indigenous people and the U.S. government's absentee way of handling it is really the thing that is at the crux of today's episode. Hell, it's just really the concept of violence as a whole. For too long and for over the centuries, indigenous people have suffered greatly while still preserving their histories and persevering nevertheless. We have seen this since we first landed on Plymouth fucking rock, from the disease that we exposed them to, the brutality that we rained down on them, from denying them citizenship rights despite the fact that we, the European settlers, should have been seeking citizenship from them, given that they are the indigenous people of these lands. But no, the historical traumas wrought upon indigenous people, from the horrific Indian residential schools that followed the creed of, quote, kill the Indian, save the man, as some twisted form of forced assimilation, to the oppressive Euro-American societal practices imposed on the tribes that instead only created, quote, a concept of shame relating to centuries of discrimination that unfold into domestic violence, substance abuse, 
poverty, and countless missing and murdered Indigenous women and girls. The purpose of the Missing and Murdered Indigenous Women movement is to, quote, increase awareness of disproportionate violence experienced by Indigenous women. Let me lay out some fast facts about this disproportionate violence for you. Indigenous women are between 3 and 3.5 times more likely to be victims of violent crime than any other women, and the violence they face is often more severe. Between the years 1980 and 2012, Indigenous women and girls represented 16% of all female homicides in Canada, while constituting only 4% of the female population in Canada. A 2011 Statistics Canada report estimated that between 1997 and 2000, the rate of homicides for Aboriginal women and girls was almost seven times higher than that for other females. Compared to non-Indigenous women and girls, they were also, quote, disproportionately affected by all forms of violence. Between 1978 and 2002, nearly 70 sex traffic workers disappeared from Vancouver's downtown east side, many of whom were Indigenous. In the United States, Native American women are more than twice as likely to experience violence than any other demographic. One in three Native women is sexually assaulted during her life, and 67% of those assaults are perpetrated by non-Natives. Between 1992 and 1996, even though Indigenous women in the U.S. experienced similar or more rates of assault and crime, they were less likely to be reported. From 2010 to 2018, in the U.S. urban communities where most incidents occur, 71 communities were observed and data gathered. In those 71 cities, 506 cases were reported. Of the 506 cases, 128, or 25%, were reported missing. 280, or 56%, were murdered. And 98, or 19%, are still unknown. In 2013, which, like, about fucking time, the U.S. Federal Violence Against Women Act was reauthorized, which, quote, for the first time gave tribes jurisdiction to investigate and prosecute felony domestic violence offenses involving both Native American and non-Native offenders on reservations. Still, though, even despite VAWA, a lot of this violence, particularly in the U.S., comes back to the fact of how the U.S. has enacted bizarre-ass, hypocritical, and murky policies when it comes to crime on Indigenous land. According to Lisa Brunner, the executive director of Sacred Spirit's First National Coalition, she states, quote, What's happened through U.S. federal law and policy is that they created lands of impunity, where this is like a playground for serial rapists, batterers, killers, whoever, 
and our children aren't protected at all. Consider, for instance, this particular Supreme Court case from 1978. According to the Supreme Court ruling in Oliphant versus Suquamish Indian tribe, Tribal courts do not hold any jurisdictional powers over non-American Indians and Alaska Natives and, therefore, cannot prosecute or punish them for their crimes on reservations. Additionally, the Indian Civil Rights Act of 1968 limits the maximum punishment for any crime to a $5,000 fine and up to one year in prison. All violent felonies committed on tribal lands can be prosecuted by the federal government through the FBI because of the federal government's relationship with the sovereign tribal nations. Outside of Alaska, California, Minnesota, Wisconsin, Oregon, and Nebraska, which are states where public law 280 applies, state and county authorities do not have criminal jurisdiction on reservations. However, it is believed, quote, that this split in authority creates problems as law enforcement departments compete over jurisdictional powers based on the nature of the crime. This lowers the overall effectiveness of law enforcement and provides enough immunity to non-citizens of the tribes, who are usually members of the dominant culture, for such crimes to have become commonplace. And... You know what pairs nicely with lowered, quote, overall effectiveness of law enforcement? Shoddy, shaky, or otherwise non-existent forensics. Because wouldn't you know that in the U.S. when it comes to MMIW cases, quote, forensic evidence has not been accurately collected or preserved by local law enforcement. Cases have been allowed to go cold quickly, and crucial evidence has been, quote, lost or never forwarded on from local law enforcement to the appropriate agencies. Things are not much better in terms of accountability and simply doing one's duty across the border to our northern neighbor either. It was only in 2016 that Prime Minister Justin Trudeau finally established an inquiry into the state of missing and murdered Indigenous women after years of calls for him to do so. Called the National Inquiry into Missing and Murdered Indigenous Women and Girls, the coalition started its work in September of that year. What's alarming, though, are a few factors. According to a February 16, 2016 CBC News article, Canada's Minister for the Status of Women, Patty Hajdu, said that the estimated number of Indigenous women and girls who have gone missing or have been murdered in Canada since the 1970s is uncertain, but it could be as high as 4,000. A Royal Canadian Mountain Police report estimated that the number was approximately 1,000. CBC News reported on February 16, 2016, though, that activists working for the Walk for Justice initiative started collecting the names of Indigenous women who are missing or murdered. They stopped counting when they got to 4,232. Patty Hajdu said that historically, 
there had been underreporting by law enforcement of cases of murdered and missing Indigenous women. We can't even actually come to agreement about how many victims there have been over the decades, partially due to the fact that there wasn't even a database of these missing individuals until 2010. And with no database, it shouldn't come as a shock that there is almost no specific data about this epidemic. And any data that does exist is incredibly hard to come by. There is, though, at least one point of focus that has allowed investigators and MMIW advocates to focus part of their efforts on. And that is the Highway of Tears. In the same year that the database was created, 2010, the National Center for Missing Persons and Unidentified Remains Unit was established in, quote, response to Royal Canadian Mounted Police investigations of murdered and missing Indigenous women, particularly in relation to what became known as the Highway of Tears. From Wikipedia, the term Highway of Tears refers to the 700-kilometer stretch of Highway 16 from Prince George to Prince Rupert in British Columbia. Since 1969, this has been the site of the murder and disappearance of a number of mainly Indigenous women. The phrase was coined during a vigil held in Terrace, British Columbia in 1998 by Florence Naziel, who was thinking of the victims' families crying over their loved ones. Now, the number of women who have gone missing and or were murdered is something, unsurprisingly, that is up for debate. The Canadian government claims that less than 18 women have fallen victim to the Highway of Tears. Advocates and Indigenous organizations, however, refute that. They say that the number of Highway of Tears victims is well over 40. There is a list, one longer than 18 names, available on Wikipedia for anyone who wants to learn the names of just some of the victims of this bizarre and terrifying phenomenon. I poured over it myself, and while reading, there were three young women, girls, really, whose stories caught my attention. In August 1988, a 19-year-old Indigenous woman, Roberta Nicole, went missing after leaving a camping trip in Lake Cultus, British Columbia, near Surrey, with friends a day early. She told her friends that she'd make her way to the bus stop on her own. However, after leaving her friends, only one witness ever saw her again. This witness saw her speaking with a man in a red sports car alongside the highway road. 15-year-old Indigenous young woman Cecilia Nicole was last seen in October 1989. Now, reports of her last known location vary. However, the last report said that she was last seen in Smithers, near Highway 16, but family reports that she may have moved to Vancouver Island, and RCMP reported her last in Vancouver, but they cannot confirm with the Nicole family. 
15-year-old Indigenous young woman Delphine Nicole vanished on June 13, 1990. She was last seen hitchhiking along Highway 16 and King Street on her way home to Telqua, British Columbia. At approximately 10 p.m., Delphine called her uncle to tell him that she was on her way home from Smithers. She was last seen by her two friends hitchhiking in the eastbound lane of Highway 16. If you're paying attention, you'll notice the last name, Nicole. These three girls were cousins, and they all went missing one after the other after the other. Roberta in August 1988. 14 months later, Cecilia disappeared in October 1989. And eight months after that, Delphine vanished. I've said this before, but I'm not so sure if there's such a thing as coincidence when it comes to murder. And I'd say this applies to that situation. The Chief Commissioner of Justin Trudeau's National Inquiry, Marion Buller, puts it more succinctly when she said, quote, there is an ongoing deliberate race, identity, and gender-based genocide. Indigenous women are going missing and being murdered. This is a modern-day genocide, and it needs our attention. Before I tell you how you can help, though, let me tell you a story. A story called Air Sikui. I knew the way to Grandpa's by heart. An hour up the highway, another on small country roads. When you start seeing signs for the Native American reservation off to the right and some for the nearest town on the left, you've got exactly 20 minutes left. And then it's just past the same three billboards for anti-abortion, a missing person, and a divorce attorney that hadn't been changed out in at least five years. The edge of Grandpa's property, a massive farm that seemed almost endless when I was young, was marked by a fence with a bright pink corner post. On the days he knew I'd be visiting, he'd tie a balloon to it, and we'd ride out to get it on his tractor after saying our hellos, and then continue on to visit the pigs and the goats and the cows. He only kept a few of each, mostly for my benefit, and they were all fat and happy and friendly. His real moneymaker was his corn, acres and acres of it that ran out behind his house. I wasn't allowed to play in the cornfields unsupervised. He and my parents thought it was too dangerous and that I could get lost or hurt among the stalks. But that didn't bother me too much. I much preferred to spend time with my favorite goat, Sally Mae, a young white doe who would chase me around and gently headbutt me for chin scritches and carrots. I didn't even mind that he only had an old TV with only five channels. There was always something to do outside, a chore to be done, somewhere to explore, an animal to play with, that I could keep myself busy from morning until night. Grandpa loved having me, 
I like to think I was his favorite out of all seven grandkids. And I loved going. So when my dad had a big conference out of town that he wanted mom to go with him on, it was a no-brainer where I'd end up. You're going to be good for Gramps, right, Hazel? Dad asked, glancing at me in the rearview mirror as we passed the pink post with a foil welcome balloon waving above it. Yep, I agreed readily. What do you think you guys are going to get up to this weekend? Mom half turned in her seat towards me with a smile. I'm going to play with Sally Mae and go down to the creek and help milk the cows and pet the pigs and... My to-do list took us all the way to Grandpa's front door, where he met us with a broad grin and a big hug for each. Thanks again, Pop, Dad said. You're sure you don't mind? Keeping an eight-year-old entertained on your own for four days can be tough. I'm up for it, Grandpa assured him. We'll have lots to keep us busy. Right, Hazelnut? I nodded enthusiastically as I hauled my little suitcase up the porch steps. I was already ready for my parents to be on their way so I could start living the farm life. Mom chased me up and scooped into a tight embrace, which I returned shortly before wriggling for freedom. My parents had never left me for so long, and now that it was time to say goodbye, it was obvious that they were having second thoughts. She'll be fine, Grandpa laughed. We both will be. But if she doesn't behave, I'll just drop her in the middle of the cornfield. No muss, no fuss. After they'd finally left, I dumped my things inside and grabbed Grandpa's offered hand to head out to the tractor. Once we retrieved the balloon and I had its ribbon tied securely around my wrist, we zoomed as well as one can zoom on a tractor anyway, over to the pig pen, where he let me throw some feed into the trough. When the pair of pigs, Gretel and Fat Babs, came trundling over, I crouched between them and stroked their sides while they munched. The rotund sows leaned into my hands with satisfied snorts. Afterwards, we stopped by the cow and goat enclosure which was just a large fenced-in area where the seven of them could roam free. As soon as she heard the tractor approaching, Sally Mae came bounding towards the gate, bleeding loudly and tossing her head. I barely made it in before she was bumping up against me and nuzzling her face into my stomach. We stayed out for much of the afternoon, tending first to the animals and then picking through the ever-expanding vegetable garden for supper. Grandpa had bought some fried chicken to go with it, and we sat on the back porch to eat while the sun set on a fiery horizon. What did you bring to read tonight? Grandpa asked after we settled in for the night. He was in his recliner with his feet propped up and a crossword puzzle book in his lap. We both knew that he'd only get about three words in before his eyes would droop shut and he'd start snoring, something I like to tease him about. It's about kids who live in an old boxcar because they don't have parents, I said from my place curled up on the couch. Is that so? 
Yeah, it's for school. They make us read books over summer, but I like it. Good, good, he mumbled, his pencil scratching across the page of his crossword. It was quiet out on my grandpa's farm, especially at night. I was used to hearing cars going by, dogs barking, neighbors outside, all the sounds of suburbia. But out there, there was nothing but insect songs, the occasional call of one of the farm animals, and the wind. It could be a little unnerving at times if I focused too much on it, but when I was awake in the living room with Grandpa nearby, surrounded by soft lamplight, I found it peaceful. Grandpa had just dozed off, and I had tucked myself comfortably under a blanket, my book propped against my bent knees. When the pigs started to scream. I nearly dropped my book, and Grandpa rocked forward in his chair, his eyes snapping open. The pencil he'd been holding slipped from his hand and rolled across the floor. I looked to him. My jaw clenched tight with surprise, uncertainty, fear. It's okay, Hazelnut, he said, pushing himself quickly to his feet. Probably a coyote sniffing around and scaring the girls. Nothing to worry about. But he didn't seem entirely convinced of that himself. In all my visits to Grandpa's, I'd never heard Gretel and Fat Babs make that kind of noise. Loud, harsh squeals that cut through the evening air. Nothing about it sounded right or normal. I followed close at Grandpa's heels when he hurried out of the room and went to his office, where he kept a shotgun, ammunition, and a flashlight in his closet. Are, are you going to shoot it? I asked shakily. Maybe, he said grimly. The shells loaded with loud clicks into the belly of the gun. You stay inside. No, I cried, desperate not to be left alone while the pigs were shrieking so frantically. Grandpa looked like he wanted to argue, but the loud bellow of one of the cows cut him off. Like the pigs, she sounded panicked. And as soon as she cried out, the other two joined in. He told me to stay put and headed towards the door in long strides. I'd never seen that stony look on his face before. And I hesitated a moment, just long enough for one of the pigs to scream again before chasing after him. Grandpa, I shouted. I told you to stay inside. I'm scared. He glanced over his shoulder at me, grit his teeth, and nodded. Stay close behind me. We followed the squeals to the pig pen. Grandpa had handed the flashlight to me, and I shined it around, looking for the girls. Usually, they would have come up to meet us when Grandpa whistled sharply. But there was no familiar tromp of hooves 
over dirt. Only screaming. The flashlight's beam finally fell across them in the middle of their pen. Fat Babs had her teeth buried in Gretel's ear, and she was squealing and pulling and trying to buck. Gretel was bowed slightly and tearing chunks of flesh from Babs's neck. Both were already bloodied from multiple bite wounds and gouges, their mouths lined with thick red foam, their eyes rolling wildly. Grandpa shouted their names, but neither even looked at us. They just kept attacking each other and making the most awful sounds. He grabbed me by my upper arm and dragged me away, towards the cow and goat enclosures, where more bellows and shrieks and moans tore through the night. I turned with an anguished cry and took a few steps away. My ears rang with the sound of the hysterical animals, and tears spilled in hot streaks down my face. It lifted the flashlight again, trying to find my way home. I just wanted to get inside. I just wanted the noise to stop. Something moved in the darkness, a few feet ahead of me, just beyond the reach of my light, and I froze. Grandpa! I didn't know if he'd seen it too, but he grabbed me around my waist and hoisted me up against his side, and he started to sprint as fast as he could manage back towards the house. We passed the pig pen again, where I caught sight of Gretel standing over fat babs, rooting through her spilled innards. The back door was in sight. We just had to cross through the vegetable garden, and we'd be behind the safety of locked doors. My grip on the flashlight slipped slightly as I was jostled about, and it angled downwards, illuminating the ground in front of us. And I screamed again. Arms, human arms, at least a dozen of them, were reaching up from between plants on either side of the path leading to the door. They waved jerkily, their fingers clenching and then unclenching, as if they were grasping at something. When the light fell on them, they all turned and stretched towards us. No. Grandpa breathed the single word in disbelief. He stumbled backwards, and we both fell hard to the ground. I yelped, and the flashlight bounced from my hand and landed beside me, pointed towards Grandpa. He had gone so white, so haggard, and his eyes were locked on those reaching arms. Gradually, through the terror and the confusion, I realized that there was a figure standing behind my grandfather. It looked like a man, but taller than any I had ever seen, and so muscular and broad. When it took a step towards Grandpa, who was still unaware and moved more into the light, I realized that the head sitting atop its neck was not human, but that of a great brown bear 
with one eye scarred shut. I knew I should have been afraid, that I should have warned my grandpa, that I should have responded in some way. But when I looked into the face of that creature, all I felt was an odd sense of complete peace. You do not need to be afraid. I felt more than heard something in my head, a voice, a thought. I wasn't sure. It was like nothing I'd ever known. You are an innocent. I wanted to tell it that Grandpa was an innocent too, but I was unable to speak. It reached out its large hands and plucked Grandpa off the ground, as if he weighed nothing. He let out a strangled yell as he was tossed into the vegetable garden, into those waiting arms. I just sat there and watched, with that same feeling of peace, as the filthy hands closed around Grandpa's body and began to pull and pull and pull until the soil started to swallow him up along with all of his screams. The creature stood and watched until Grandpa and the arms had vanished. And then, as suddenly as it appeared, it turned and walked back into the darkness. The moment it was gone, so too was the calm that had blanketed my body and mind. The 911 operator could barely understand me when I finally got my legs to work again and made it to the house phone. I was sobbing and hysterical, and mostly all I could say was, Grandpa's in the ground. Cops and firefighters and paramedics filled the front yard. They had thought that my grandfather might have had a heart attack or stroke, and I was too young to know how to explain it properly. It took some time to make them understand that I meant what I said. Grandpa was in the ground. They dug up the freshly tilled earth of the garden where I had last seen my grandfather. They had to go down almost six feet. They found his body covered in deep fingernail scratches, his limbs nearly torn off at the sockets, buried amongst six others in a mass grave. I knew the way to Grandpa's by heart. An hour up the highway, another on small country roads. Then you start seeing signs for the Native American reservation off to the right. A reservation that nine women had gone missing from in 10 years. A reservation that had been ignored when it sought help from the local police department after the first two women vanished while hitchhiking down those small country roads. A reservation that had been ignored by the media 
when its counsel asked for coverage detailing the disappearances. And then it's just past the same three billboards, one for a missing person, a Native American woman named Dana Young. She was 21 when she left home to catch a ride into the city after her mom couldn't give her a lift. Her family and friends, they searched for years without much, if any, real help from surrounding authorities. And every year, they paid to keep that billboard up in the hopes that someone would see it and recognize Dana. They didn't know that she was just 20 minutes up the road. They didn't know that she was lying beneath a vegetable garden that expanded six times over. They didn't know the friendly old man whose house they'd stopped at with flyers and who smiled sympathetically at them and who promised to call if he saw or heard anything. They didn't know he was the same one who had taken her. Two of the women were never found, but jewelry belonging to them, a wedding ring and a necklace were discovered in my grandfather's safe. They were the first two to go missing. The ninth and final woman who had disappeared only three days prior to my visit to grandpa's and who received nothing more than a small blurb in the local paper was found clinging to life in a cellar dug beneath the old barn behind the cornfield that Grandpa never let anyone near. He had said that it was unsafe, that it was where he stored his old tools and machinery, and he didn't want someone walking in and hurting themselves. No one had ever questioned him. The woman, Pauline Smith, had carved a single word into the wooden beam that she'd been shackled to, using only her fingernails and blood. Air Sukui. The cops didn't know what it meant, nor did they care much. They were too busy being baffled over Grandpa's death and my version of events that led up to it. That was their biggest concern. Not why those women had been murdered, not why no one had investigated more. Not why nothing had been done by anyone off of the reservation. Only the strange way my grandfather and all of his farm animals had died. I had nightmares for years afterwards. Of the screams I'd heard. Of the waving arms sticking up out of the ground. Of my grandfather the murderer who had fed me vegetables grown from the bodies of his victims. I never had nightmares about the bareheaded man, though. I only ever saw him when my dreams grew too dark, and I was so afraid that my own heartbeat pounding against my ribs threatened to wake me. He would appear to me then, just on the edge of my vision, 
and I would hear those same words I'd heard that night, and I would feel the same peace. You do not need to be afraid. You are an innocent. It was many years before I was able to look back at that night, at those deaths, and start to piece together what I had seen. I had to dig deep, to go through tons of old articles, to reread all the horrible things about Grandpa that I'd been trying to forget, before I found the answer in a single word that a desperate woman had broken her nails off to spell out in wood. Air Sakui. There wasn't much information, but enough. It was a name, one that belonged to a being that seemed almost lost in the internet age. From what little I could find, there was a debate over exactly what Air Sakui had originally been a god of fire or a god of war. But his later place in his pantheon was clear. He had been a great spirit, one that was called upon in times of peril. Pauline Smith, knowing that she was part of an often overlooked and ignored group, had had faith. Not in the police or the authorities who tossed those files containing the smiling photos and details of others like her aside. Not in the media who gave her a single paragraph at the bottom of a newspaper page. Not in a billboard that hundreds of people drove by every day without ever really seeing. She had had faith in something greater and she had cried out. And he had listened. The scary thing about this story is that this piece by Redditor Pippinlicious is fiction. The stories of the missing and murdered indigenous women, though, they are very real. The terror of this particular story is that it touches on concepts and themes that are also all too real because there are so many missing and murdered indigenous women waiting to be found, waiting to be brought home, waiting for their justice. Justice that is long overdue and sorely, sorely needed. And they don't just need justice, they need support, they need protection, they need our help. We really don't have any idea of just how many women, girls, two-spirits, or trans-indigenous people have gone missing or been murdered over the years. And that's absolutely chilling when you think about it. If you're interested in getting involved with the MMIW movement, here are a few resources to check out. The Lakota Law website has a huge compilation of resources, toolkits, information, and resources in general for those who are interested in helping the MMIW movement. If you want to follow the movement on Twitter, you can follow at NNMPU1, which is the Navajo Nation Missing Persons Update, and NIWRC, 
National Indigenous Women's Resource Center. On Instagram, you can follow at missing.murdered.natives and at sacred underscore M-M-I-W-G. If you or someone that you know is experiencing violence, there is help. You can call the National Domestic Violence Hotline at 1-800-799-7233. There's the National Dating Abuse Helpline, which is reachable at 1-866-331-9474. There's the National Child Abuse Hotline Child Help, which is 1-800-4-A-CHILD or 1-800-422-4453. For Indigenous-centric help, you can reach out to the National Indigenous Women's Resource Center, which can be reached at 1-855-649-7299. This week, I don't have a laundry list of hashtag questions to ask you simply because there's only one that matters in this case. How many indigenous women have to go missing or wind up murdered for the seriousness of this epidemic to be taken seriously? I'll simply leave you with this idea. The MMIW USA website has a saying stamped across their website. And translated, it means, fight like a hatchet woman. So fight like a hatchet woman, everyone. Especially for the missing and murdered indigenous women, whose stories still need to be told. The stories of missing and murdered indigenous women matter. Missing and indigenous women matter. Thanks for listening to today's episode, and special credit to Reddit user Pippinlicious and their story, Air Sakui. If you're liking what you're hearing, please go leave a five-star review and rating for the show over on Apple Podcasts. I'll be back here next week with a hashtag question-loaded story to tell you. If you're interested in joining the DAW Patreon crew, you can head on over to patreon.com slash darkasellpodcast to see what level of support might be up your alley of interest. If you're not sure what level you'd like to start at, well, there's a new Patreon level and it only costs $1. You can support DA and the work that I do here for just a dollar a month and get yourself shouted out in an episode, as well as have access to exclusive content on the Patreon. While you're waiting for next week's episode to drop, you can find Dark as Hell on Instagram at Dark as Hell Podcast, which is all one word, and on Twitter over at at DarkasLPod. Again, that's also all one word. If you want to get in touch with me, you can email your comments or hashtag questions of your own over to me at darkasLPodcast at gmail.com, or you can head over to darkasLPodcast.com. Thanks again for listening. I'll catch you back here next week, ready to get dark as hell all over again.